Rob Pringle, and I run the media sort of the media operation really for Compass, I suppose, mainly mainly for the Migration Observatory. And what I'm actually going to talk to you about today, this is a sort of a slightly revised version of a presentation that I did for Metropolis in Milan uh, last year, looking at the nature of the me- of, well, the nature of migration in the British media primarily, but also kind of trying to understand why it looks the way it looks what that means from a policy perspective, and sort of dealing with a rather complicated and uh, complicated question about what truth actually is in these contexts. So, yeah, as I was saying, what, these, this, these are the things that I'm hopefully going to be addressing. So what does truth mean in a story about migration? What does media coverage about migration in the UK look like, which is what I've actually been sort of trying to, trying to articulate for the last two minutes? And the third is, right, what are the reasons, what are the motivating factors that make media organisations report on migration issues in the way that they do it. And how does that then relate back to those first two points? For those of you who don't know about the Migration Observatory, um, maybe, you, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, most of the people from Compass here will do, but those of you who don't, the Migration Observatory is a project which was set up by Compass to try to provide sort of uh, have, I, have I written down it? <laughs> a huge suite of data and analysis dealing with migration issues in a sort of in a, a, an objective and politically neutral way. But if we want, uh, and so that we can inform public debates on migration, but without kind of trying to shape them in, in, our, in, in a way which is driven by our own agenda. Um, now, to do that, I mean, fundamentally, that means that we need to be working with the media. And my background is journalistic um, and also in working in strategic public relations. Um, so I spent a lot of time trying to work to insert our analysis into pertinent media debates, such as that today, which has seen a large. Uh, we, we've seen a lot of coverage today of the fact that net migration has now reached 318,000, and the migration observatory has already been all over the news. Madeline's been on things like the World at One and stuff like that. But so one of the other things that I'm going to be dealing with here a little bit is Will's project. Uh, Will's hiding at the back here. Um, Will's project, which is looking at the sort of quantitative element of media of media coverage, um, but looking at that in the context of the narrative and themes that emerge in the British media debate. So, yeah, so this discussion is essentially going to be sort of unpicking this relationship between media and migration, um, and that requires us to address these two fundamentally challenging words, truth and migration. Um, and they're challenging for a number of reasons, but primarily because they're both extremely vague as concepts, um, but they're also very important, obviously. Now, I mean, if we start with truth and think about truth in the context of news... One of the things, I mean, I think it's not unfair to say that the one thing, actually, that everybody wants from their chosen news source or from journalism generally is truth. Because as soon as you move away from, from truth being the kind of core of a news story, and truth obviously is a complicated and nebulous concept, but as soon as you move away from it being about, from, from truth being the core of what you're receiving, you start to move into the, into the, or into the realms of, of accepting something which, is no, which you know is misleading you. And something which you know is misleading you isn't, isn't news. It's either essentially fiction or else it's just a lie, and that's a problem. But, but truth, as, as we were saying, is a very subjective concept. And the same information can mean different things to different people at different times and in different contexts. Um, and it can also be partial and misleading. So a story comprised entirely of correct facts and quotes can ignore, either deliberately or by mistake, other important factors. And that leads the re- so that you receive stories that essentially lead the reader or the viewer to conclusions that are flawed. So there's a sort of paradoxical situation, which is that some forms of truth can be fundamentally misleading. 
Um, and migration is also a difficult word. And I mean, I've kind of I, I'm trotting out the, the lines that I wrote for the for the for the uh, for the compass anthology here. But basically, it's different. It's difficult for all kinds of reasons, but particularly because it's it, the word itself encompasses a vast array of different interlinked phenomena, none of which actually expl- is explained by the word itself. So it means something different to every person who moves from one place to another. I mean, it, it means something different to every person who encounters those people who are moving from one place to another. And it means something different to, to, to people who encounter them at the beginning of their journey, during their journey, and at the end of their journey. And it's difficult because it's simultaneously political, social, economic, historical, legal, anthropological, geographical, demographic, and has international relations dimensions to it, or international development, rather, relation. Um, uh, dimensions to it. But it's also difficult because it's something that's extremely personal, but at the same time something that's very public. It affects individuals, it affects families, communities, states, transnational bodies, and all of these in innumerable different kinds of ways. So, I mean, even the very word migration, like the people that it describes, is it, it crosses borders and boundaries, and it's, it creates vexation and confusion. So, I wanted, what I wanted to look at now was, was one recent uh, migration story in the British News actually now about a year old, I apologise, I didn't have a lot of time to redo my, uh, my <laughs> to redo my thing after Rob cancelled yesterday. So this is looking at the issue of um, undocumented migrants and asylum seekers in Calais who are, we can reasonably presume, looking to come to the UK. And there was a big hoo-ha in the British press about this over the course of last year. There will be another big hoo-ha about it this year, I would imagine, um, but there are some some relatively undisputed sort of pieces of truth, whatever you want to call them, that sort of underpin the discussion about, about this. So the first is that over the course of last year, at various different points, there were somewhere between, I'm sure that Frank can give us a better figure than I, than I can come up with here, but somewhere between sort of 1,500 and 2,500 migrants at, very, at various times in Calais looking to, come to, looking to reach the UK, presumably via clandestine means, so on the backs of trucks or however else it is that, get, that they're intending to get here. Most are from countries with poor human rights records and encountering some level of, of instability. These obviously include Iraq, Syria, Eritrea and Sudan. Most are, thought, uh, most are not thought to have claimed asylum at the, at the stage that they're at in Calais and are therefore currently classed as irregular migrants. But, most, but, but, but many, and probably most, are expected to claim asylum in the UK when they get here. Again, Frank can probably slap me down on most of this. (laughs) There are serious concerns in Calais about the impact that this is having on the town. A large group, which was a couple of hundred, I think, of of these migrants, tried to force their way onto a ferry at one point, hoping to reach the UK. Um, The migrants that are in Calais, we can reasonably conclude, consider the UK to be an attractive destination of one sort or another. And the mayor of Calais, Natasha Bouchard, was highly critical of the UK, suggesting that the UK welfare state was too generous and that the UK was seen as an El Dorado by asylum seekers and irregular migrants. So now I just wanted to look at some of the media response to this. So we've got, I mean, what we've got, we've got the Daily Express up there. Britain is a migrant magnet. Our soft-touch benefits system acts as a migrant. We've got uh, the Metro with migrants ready to die for your British benefits. Uh, we've got Calais goes to war over soft-touch UK benefits in the Times. Then we've got things from the Daily Mail, El- Britain and El Dorado for migrants. The Guardian, obviously a different sort of political perspective there. But nonetheless, still Calais migrants willing to die to come to Britain, says French ports mayor. So now let's consider these stories and, and, and consider two different types of truth. The first is the question of are these stories 
providing an accurate or truthful account of Natasha Bouchard's evidence to the UK's government's Home Affairs Select Committee? And the answer to that is, yeah, pretty much they are. Now, the other question, the other, the other, the other question, the other sort of truth question is, what's the overall narrative that's being provided to much of the UK public by the media? And then sort of, the sort of sub-question there is, is that narrative reasonable or correct? And, I mean, I would summarise that narrative as saying... Britain's welfare state is particularly generous to asylum seekers and therefore the country is attracting a particularly large number and these people are willing to die to get to the UK. Now, the question then is, is this correct? Well, no. I mean, it doesn't seem to be really. I mean, and I'm sure, again, many of you will be much better on the data than I am here, but as I understand it, in 2013, France received 66,000 applications for asylum while the UK received 29,000. Germany took 126,000. Sweden took 56,000. So the UK doesn't actually, looking at it in that context, seem particularly attractive to migrants, or to asylum seekers, rather. And indeed, per capita, the UK ranks 16th out of, 20, uh, out of 28 EU member states. So the issues facing Calais are significant, but they're localised. Calais is a bottleneck through which those who do want to come to the UK may well pass, but that's not the same as, as, that, as the presence of those, of those migrants there being proof that the UK in particular is extremely attractive to asylum seekers. And then there's obviously the two sub-points that are worth making about how the media is dealing with this or not dealing with this, which is the first is that the definitions are very vague and confused. You know, are, are, they, are they asylum seekers? Are they illegal immigrants? And the issue of addressing terminology with journalists can be very complicated and very difficult. Um, it's extremely important, though, but those of us who have to do this on a, on a day-to-day basis find it very challenging. So the second thing is this, and this is the obvious point that most of you will, I'm sure, have, have, have immediately come to with, it, with looking at any of these, which is that these stories ignore the key point, which is that regardless of their status, these people are generally from war-torn or highly unstable and repressive countries. So what should the UK or the French government or any other government be doing about this situation and about the fact that they're there? Anyway, so the overall point of this is that telling the truth, as it were, so this is, these are truthful representations of Natasha Bouchard's evidence, but telling the truth isn't always the same as helping people to actually understand something. Now, this Calais example obviously gives us one specific, sort of a picture of one specific news story, but public response to news isn't really ever based, I don't think, on single stories. It's based on narratives that are built up over long periods of time and through numerous stories. So to try to understand that better, one of the things that the Migration Observatory has done, and here I have to look over at Will and sort of and, and bow down before his brilliance, is to design the Migration in the Media project, which, again, many people at Compass, I would imagine, are acquainted with. Those of you who aren't, I'm going to just give you a quick rundown of some of the things that emerged from the Migration in the Media project. And it's designed, so basically the, the gist of the Migration in the Media project is that it's designed to help people to understand, or to help us rather, to understand the kind of complex interaction between media, public opinion and policy making by looking at huge numbers of stories that are dealing with migration over a long period of time. And it's, it's a quantitative big data project and it's an analysis of newspaper coverage of immigration. It took every single story in every, sorry, not just story, but every single story, every letter, every uh, opinion column in, in I, think, I think it was 20, was it 20 British newspapers as well? Uh, 19. 19, okay, I was close. 19 nat- British national newspapers, which is essentially the whole suite of the main national newspapers in the UK, that used the words immigrant, migrant, asylum seeker or refugee um, over a three-year <coughs> period, and it examined the words that were associated with those terms. And this, as I say, was trying to get a, an overall picture of, the, of what the migration debate in the UK looked like over this long period. 
So, I mean, just to kind of set this in context, oh, well, sorry, here we go. These, these are the sort of numbers that are associated with it. So that was 58,000 stories or items, you know, so this includes, as I say, the letters and the opinion pieces and what have you, um, made up of 43 million words and then looked at these collocates, the words that are associated with those target words, which was immigrant, migrant, asylum seeker, refugee, and their, their various forms of, of those words. And it looked at two main types. It looked at descriptors, the L1 collocates, the words that appear immediately to the left of the, of the target word, and it looked at consistent collocates, so words that would regularly appear alongside, um, alongside you know, or in the story along with those target words. Um, and it broke the media into three main groups, tabloids, mid-markets, and broadsheets. I'm not going to bother explaining to you the difference between those other than to say that the difference between tabloids and mid-markets is that the mid-markets are essentially just the Daily Mail and the Daily Express and the tabloids are all of the other kind of um, essentially sort of uh, sensation-driven, sort of smaller, less uh, less focused, less sort of uh, less intellectually elite newspapers. And I'll just kind of introduce you to some of the key, uh, the key findings. So this is looking at the word uh, immigrants and the, wor- and the word the L1 collocate for uh, immigrants. And the, the term that was used most regularly to describe migrants, and I'm sure those of you who've already seen this, to, to describe immigrants rather, was illegal. And it was across all newspaper types, and by a factor of about 10, I think, across all newspaper types. And when you got into the mid-markets, vastly more. There were various other words that you would see kind of coming up in the uh, uh, as consistent collocates as well throughout the corpus. Often these are words that describe the scale of migration. These are words like million, number, thousands, influx. So that's clearly a key theme. And then we'd also quite often see words related to things like the welfare state, like benefits and stuff like that popping up. So you can start to actually unpick what the overall debate looks like. It's worth looking as well at asylum seekers and seeing what the consistent, uh, sorry, what the L1 collocates, the most common L1 collocates are there. And again, you see that failed by, I mean, this is only giving you a kind of, uh, a quick look at the, the biggest, that failed, again, is just head and shoulders above the other words in terms of a descriptor for, for asylum seekers in the British media, or British newspaper media anyway. So again, I mean, this, this, this message, this, the kind of narrative that emerges from that is one of, fraudulent essentially claims for asylum other words that you'll quite that you'll see coming up again are words like illegal criminal so again yes yeah, so as i said the most prominent narrative in uk media around immigrants is one of illegality the most prominent narr- narrative in uh, in british newspapers around asylum seekers is one of failure so, suggesting as i say false claims so then you have a question another question which is well is it wrong for the british press to do this and you, this is subjective as well. I mean, at the end of the day, if the British public's biggest concerns are about undocumented migration and fraudulent asylum claims, then it's only natural to some extent that the press is going to reflect this. But then another question arises, which is, is the press the actual reason why these are the primary concerns of, of people? So, I mean, then you have another question, which is, so why does newspaper reporting actually look like this? Um, and I'm just going to quickly... I just. I've, I've, I've been going off down a bit of a rabbit hole of, uh, of uh, looking at work by Edward Bernays recently and, uh, and some other stuff by Sir Walter Lippmann and Noam Chomsky looking at this kind of idea of engineering consent or manufacturing consent. And I think one of the things that we need to consider here is this is, so this is a quote from, from Bernays' uh, 1947 uh, essay, The Engineering of Consent, which I think is quite, quite telling. Freedom of speech and its democratic corollary of free press have tacitly expanded our Bill of Rights to include the right to persuasion. This was the inevitable result of the expansion of the media of free, of free speech and persuasion. Now, I mean, this idea 
of the right to persuade, I think, is pretty core when you start thinking about how the press does things and why the press operates in particular ways and how people try to influence the press to do certain things and, and how the press itself may wish to persuade people towards certain agendas, may wish to engineer people's consent towards certain... Out- I'll just... That was a little bit of a kind of, sort of side point, which I think is worth thinking about. But in terms of why newspaper coverage looks like it does, I mean, I used to be a journalist, and many, many years ago I used to work... Um, I used to train other journalists when I was news editing a local paper. And I used to try and tell them that, you know, the, the ideal news story would be one which kind of considered all of the different factors that you could only really ever catch a small part of, of, of a big picture in a story. So you wanted to try to aim for a point around about in the middle, which kind of was as close to all of the different kind of elements that you wanted to, to, that you wanted to have covered, all the different perspectives and views as you could. But, you know, the same sort of distance from everything. Because otherwise, if you end up right over here only focusing on the economic stuff, in missing the kind of the personal or labour market stuff, you, you miss things. But this was a, possibly a slightly idealised wor- way of, of, of writing news stories, and possibly explains why I'm no longer a journalist. But the point is that there are lots of there are often lots of very uh, different competing elements to truth, and it's very it's very hard to hit that point in the middle. But there is another reality, and that's that there's a good solid commercial reason for media organisations to tell stories in particular ways, regardless of whether they do end up being particularly you know, misleading, partial, or just leaning too far towards one side of the kind of this big nebulous concept of the truth to, 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 to give people a kind of whole picture of what it is. And this is that news organisations are, generally speaking, commercial or quasi-commercial body. And news, therefore, is a service. It's not a commodity. Sorry, it's, it's not a service. Well, so let me rewind and start again. News is not a service. It's a commodity. It's a product. It's used, and, it, and it, it's, a, it's, it's something which is used to sell these bigger products, which is these newspapers or the commercial television programme, whatever it may be. And different types of news product get used in different ways to sell to different markets. Um, now, I, so most news organisations, and in the UK this excludes to some extent terrestrial broadcasters, but not completely, don't have a responsibility to be balanced in their coverage of any issue. They're businesses, and they're not public servants, and their intentions to sell their content effectively enough to keep the business functioning, make a profit, feed their shareholders, whatever it may be. And, but for a newspaper, this, this means that you have to do certain things. You have to understand who buys your product and what they want, then you have to give it to them, and then you have to build a relationship with those people and, so that they like and trust the content that you're providing. And this essentially means that you want to segment the market. And that market segmentation means that if newspapers are going to be trying to sell their, news, their, their products to people who are likely to be broadly opposed to immigration, then they're not going to start going out and rocking the boat, desperately trying to change their readers' views about something. They're, they're going to tell their readers essentially what they want to hear. And they're going to help those readers to feel that the positions that they've already taken on things are justified and sensible, and that they, that they as a news product, you know, support those readers in, in, in their concerns and views about things. Now, I mean, of course, it's never going to be quite as, as simple as that because you're, you know, in order to be trusted, you have to make at least some sort of cursory effort to present counter-arguments and present sort of shades of grey in these things. But it, it, it's fairly absurd to imagine that a media organisation is going to try and represent a point of view that's completely at odds with that of its readership or its viewers. And from this perspective, there's a fairly basic business case for anti-immigration news in, news content in the UK, which is that repeated surveys, and this is uh, one, actually this is from British Social Attitudes, we, Migration Observatory has done similar ones, but repeated surveys have shown, that, have shown for, for decades that a majority of British people have been concerned about levels of immigration to the UK. 
Yeah, around about 75% of people on this, on this uh, which tallies pretty much with what the Migration Observatory surveys have shown and what other previous surveys have done, are saying that they want to see immigration to the UK reduced. So stories that dwell in that case on the sort of negative aspects of immigration obviously more likely to resonate with readers, viewers, whatever it may be, than stories that push those positive, those positive, um, positive messages about it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just going back as well a little bit to, to this kind of idea of Bernays and the engineering of consent, I just wanted to look at the, what actually happened over the course of today. So this is my desperate attempt to make this this very this old talk relevant for today, but I think it is. So the data which we, the data that's come out today shows that we shows net migration standing at three hundred eighteen thousand for two hundred fourteen, uh, for, sorry for two thousand fourteen, and that's the highest level for for a calendar year on record. Now, the government clearly doesn't particularly want people to focus on this negative outcome uh, when when they've been working towards a um, when they've been working towards a, uh, a net migration net migration in the tens of thousands. So knowing all of this, Cameron scheduled a speech this morning, which was focusing largely on illegal immigration and efforts to crack down on it. And again, illegal immigration is a, a, an area which is a known quantity as far as the government is concerned. I mean, we know that people are particularly concerned about illegal immigration. This is a, this is a, some data from a survey that the Migration Observatory did uh, back in 2011, asking people who'd already expressed a desire to see immigration reduced what you know, um, whether or not they were more concerned about illegal or, uh, or they'd like to see illegal or legal migration to the UK reduced more. And most people were focused on either, you know, I mean, you see, or at least the highest, well, I say most people, a, a significant number of people were primarily interested in seeing illegal immigration have to be tackled rather than legal migration. Now, of course, the 318,000 net migration tar- data from today is all about legal migration. So by, by, by kind of reframing the debate and sort of sending people off down a sort of discussion around the issue of, uh, of illegal migration, you're able to kind of sidestep to some extent. I mean, I'm not sure how successfully he's going to do it, but sidestep the fact that your policy has gone somewhat wrong. Create an environment in which, in which people are kind of focused on the fact that you're doing something to crack down and sort things out at a time when actually there's very bad news out there. Anyway... Moving on from that, I, I think it's, it's, it's worth recognising, of course, that when, when we think about the sort of segmentation of the press and the efforts that people make to try to sell their media product to people, that there are also media outlets out there that do champion liberal policies. Um, but those, those, those organisations, whether it be The Guardian or the BBC or I mean, on, on migration, from a migration perspective, the FT, these, these are organisations that are also presenting what's going to be appealing to their readers. You know, so the FT takes a liberal line on migration issues because business leaders tend to see immigration as a key tool within a global market. The Guardian does so because its readers, like teachers and university staff, uh, are often concerned about human rights issues, migration and all this kind of stuff. But, I mean, sort of key point of all of this is that market segmentation is, a, is an extremely effective way of reinforcing your relationship with your readers and your viewers. You can bring an audience together in a sort of campaigning community which allows outlets to do this quite effectively. And the Daily Mail, in particular, is very, very good at doing this. It helps to kind of create a campaign for people to rally behind so that the community can kind of feel that they're on the side of the angels, battling for sort of righteous goals against a tide of villains and enemies. And these villains, of course, are generally presented as are generally those people who represent the opposite of whatever worldview it is that, uh, that, 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 that you, encouraged by your newspaper choice, are going to espouse. So in the conservative press, you know, you're going to have these villains being job-stealing, welfare-abusing, criminal immigrants, whatever. 
but but it'll also encompass the whole, you know, the opposing media camp as well. You know, say for the conservative media, you've got the, the you know, bad guys read the Guardian, they vote Labour, uh, they're pro e or, or for or for the Lib Dems or the Greens or whatever, and they believe that immigration and multiculturalism are generally positive things. Whereas in the liberal press, you see the same sort of thing happening, but in kind of the reverse. So you'll see again, you know, the villains are painted just as cartoonishly. You've got, you know, the mig- instead of migrants being the vi- instead of migrants being victims, being the villains rather. Sorry, you've got Little England as being terrible villains. The Daily Mail, you know, the Daily Mail becomes the sort of re- the replacement for the Guardian as a newspaper to be hated. Uh, the Conservative Party or UKIP become the kind of the soulless political untouchable. But there is a bottom line, which is that anti-immigration media outlies, outweighs pro-immigration media by a substantial margin because more British people are concerned about high, about high levels of immigration than are not. So it makes business sense for more of the press to actually capitalise on it. Now, I mean, I haven't, gone, I haven't mentioned the BBC at this stage because I mean, it's a challenge. It's a sort of non-commercial organisation, and it has been criticised in the past for being... Um, to pro-migration. And I mean, it's important. I think there are important questions to be asked about the BBC and migration. You know, how should a publicly funded uh, media organisation deal with complex policy issues? It's a challenge. But I don't actually think that I've got the skill or the time to get into, the de- into how to do that right now. So anyway, the bottom line is I've put forward two main arguments that are sort of interlinked here, one of which is that truth is a kind of malleable concept. And the other is that the British news media has got a commercial rationale for presenting migration issues in a negative light. And despite the fact that there are a smaller number of of news outlets that have a commercial rationale for doing the opposite, I mean, then you've got to kind of ask yourself, what are the the implications of this for the management of migration? Well, firstly, I think that it means that organisations, whether they be think tanks, academics, government departments, political parties, um, that present migration in a negative light are more likely to be presented with a sympathetic ear by a larger set of media outlets um, because it'll help them sell their product. But that interlinked nature of um, media, public opinion and policy making also creates a sort of circular situation. I've got arrows on this now, haven't it? It creates a sort of circular situation which, um, which kind of increases volume on the immigration debate, something like a ratchet. The more negative media coverage, the British public's reaction to the issue of migration tends to be more... Are truculent, more angry, and when the British public's perceptions about these things are more kind of negative and angry, then you're more likely to see a more kind of a more vigorous policy response to it. And when you start having politicians talking more and more about these things and being tougher and tougher about it, then obviously the media reports on that and, and pushes out tougher and tougher rhetoric, pushes the politicians to be harder and harder about these things, and so it goes around and around and around. It's a kind of unstoppable circle of kind of increased volume and increased negativity I suppose um, about the issue uh, so it's a challenge so anyway let, let, just to conclude what is I apologise for being rather short And so just to conclude so the truth is a malleable concept and news organisations aren't there simply to provide objective independent comprehensive analysis to people they exist to sell a product um, and they adjust their product to appeal to their audiences um, the interaction between policymakers, the press and public opinion can act like a, rat, like a ratchet in, my, in terms of in migration rhetoric. And this has profound implications for public understanding of migration. But it's also an inevitable consequence of a free press in the commercial environment um, and this right to persuade that I think we, nobody wants to try and dis, to, to take away from anybody. So, I mean, this, this then, so, I mean, this basically leads me to the conclusion that people working to improve public debates on migration, people like myself and to some extent, I suppose, most of you, who want to take the heat out of the issue to some extent, the 
the only way that I can see of doing that is to try to understand what the media what the media does, to try to understand what its rationales are, and to try to provide things to them that are going to help to take the heat out of it, but in a way which actually will help them to sell their products. Now, that's a complicated thing to do, but pointing your finger at the press and telling them that they're wrong probably won't work. But giving them good stories, if you can, might well do. So just the, the, the end of this is that the, the price of a free press is that the press is free to frame the truth in all kinds of different ways. And I think that is a good thing, but it does have profound downsides.